Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code REMEMBER, for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. You must remember just a kid. A Welcome to another episode of Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. What you're hearing is a version of the song, Pagan Love Song, which was first introduced in a very early sound film called Pagan Boy, which we discussed a while back in our episode on Ramon Navarro. This version of the song comes from a 1950 Technicolor musical called Pagan Love Song, and it plays through a mostly underwater ballet performed by today's subject, Esther Williams. You can watch a clip of this scene on YouTube, and you should, because it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. At the beginning of the scene, Williams glides from the top of the screen to the bottom as though she's falling from the heavens. And she swims, almost in slow motion, close enough to the camera to allow you to fully take in her lacquered beauty queen hair, her permanent blinding white grin, and to contemplate. How does she look like that underwater? Today's storyteller is here to explain just that. Rachel Syme is a writer, reporter, and cultural critic who writes a regular column for The New Yorker on fashion and beauty. She is also a regular contributor to The New York Times Magazine, GQ, Vanity Fair, and Esquire. Rachel, why did you want to tell the story of Esther Williams? Well, first of all, I saw Bathing Beauty and Million Dollar Mermaid, two of her biggest films, and I, like you had said earlier, I was completely captivated by the visual spectacle of it all. The choreography and the coordination that it took for those synchronized swimming where they're all in the 
bathing caps and doing the sunbursts and she's shimmering in this sort of long, almost like bathing evening gown and has to jump from 100 feet in the air and dive and land with no splash and everything was so perfect. I think those images were indelible and stayed in my head for a long time after I saw them. But also my interest in her returned uh, last year when I uh, was assigned a piece for Vanity Fair on designers who were sending um, crying models down the runway. Gucci was doing this and um, I think Tom Ford and there were a couple other designers that were doing it and they and the editor asked me to look into the history of glamorous crying and as a result into the history of waterproof mascara. And in doing so, I found out that waterproof mascara was as you'll learn in this episode, developed in part for Esther. And because of that, I became really interested in looking into the concept of underwater beauty, wet beauty, um, and that kind of perfect facade mermaid fantasy. Join us, won't you? As Rachel Syme tells us the story of Esther Williams. If you know the name Esther Williams, chances are you have recently done some resort wear shopping. This movie star, who died in 2013 and whose box office peak came and went 70 years ago, is best known today for the flattering, butt-covering, ruched halter-top swimsuits bearing her name, which come in colors like cherry red and gold lame. The swimwear line, launched in 1989, was just one of several entrepreneurial efforts that allowed Esther Williams to make money long after she stopped diving on camera. She wanted women to feel confident getting into the pool, and so she marketed modest pinup suits like the ones she wore in the movies, so tight that they suction in the midsection like spanks, with lycra that lifts the rear and draped swishy fabric that covers the thighs, almost like a mini dress. She made a promise to her customers. I will put you in a suit that contains you. I don't want you to be in two Dixie cups and a fish line. Esther Williams spent most of her life in swimwear, splashing around underwater and emerging with a big, sparkling smile. She enjoyed two decades of sustained celebrity, and her branding power continues to this day. At her peak, she made it look easy, but it wasn't. The perpetual maintenance of a beach-ready physique sent her into ever-increasing depressive spirals. She had to appear camera-ready even when dripping wet. Makeup artists had to find creative ways to shellac her face in place, leading to several innovations that we still use today. If you've ever felt grateful to be wearing waterproof mascara while having a weepy meltdown in your car, then you have Esther to thank. Williams also suffered years of abuse at the hands of her male co-stars and studio executives, who viewed her constantly half-clad body as an open invitation to be handsy, and sometimes far worse. She injured herself several times making swimming pictures. One dive left her nearly paralyzed and in a full-body cast for six months. She broke her MGM contract in the 1960s and left millions of dollars on the table in the process. One of her four husbands stole from her, and another emotionally manipulated her. While Esther fully embodied the fantasy of a shimmering mythical mermaid on screen, she was still very much a part of this world, and she found her life on dry land difficult to navigate. Her stardom and her struggles 
lay bare more than most the labor involved in maintaining one's body for the public eye. Esther had to deal with two separate but equally demanding beauty standards. She was an actress and an athlete. She had to showcase her physical strength, but also conform to the buxom, pin-up aesthetics of mid-century Hollywood. What this amounted to was a life of vigorous control that she had to make look effortless. While things looked placid on the surface, Esther was kicking like hell below. When Esther Jane Williams was born, in 1922 in Inglewood, California, she was not the member of her family that seemed most destined for stardom. Her older brother, Stanton, was under contract to the silent film company Garson Studios, quickly becoming the family's breadwinner. This all changed when Stanton died, tragically, at only 16, from a sudden illness. At that moment, Esther remembers, she felt the responsibility to take his place. Esther taught herself to swim when she was about eight years old, because her mother, ever the stage mom, promised the owners of a new local pool that Esther would perform at its opening. At the time, Esther remembers, sports were considered sweaty and unfeminine for girls. But she didn't let this stigma stop her. After her pool inaugural, which included a graceless belly flop, Esther became obsessed with swimming. She competed often, catching the eye of a swimming coach at the Los Angeles Athletic Club, an expensive spa with its own in-house swimming team. Esther joined the club at 15 and immediately began winning championships. It was during her athletic club days that Esther says she first saw swimming as a way to process her trauma. Not only did she find it helped with the grief of losing her brother, but she also found it was a way to feel in control again after being raped at 13 by an orphaned neighborhood boy who her parents had taken in. His assaults went on for two years before Esther told her parents, and during those years of disassociation, she would process her pain in the pool. Knifing through the water, she said, I could be in control. At first, Esther had no designs on being a movie star. Why would she? There were no swimming movie stars when she was growing up in the 1930s. What Esther really wanted to be was an Olympian. Her coach at the club told her it would take four years for her to become national champion. She did it in two. In 1939, at the National Championships, she blitzed through the 100-meter freestyle and breaststroke, becoming the top woman in both events. She was fully prepared for the 1940 Summer Games in Helsinki when news came that the Olympics were canceled as a result of the Second World War. For Esther, this was devastating. Athletes only have a few years when their bodies are in prime competitive condition, and she worried that she would not have another chance to compete on a global scale. In fact, she would not, as the Olympics did not return until 1948, by which time she was already a box office star. At this point, she had no idea that fame was coming. After the Olympics were canceled, Esther had to make ends meet by modeling clothes at a department store. Esther may have abandoned professional swimming then, had it not been for the New York producer Billy Rose and his swimming spectacular, The Aquacade. In 1939, Billy Rose, a short, pugnacious nightlife impresario who at the time was married to Fanny Bryce, debuted his Aquacade show at the New York World's Fair in Queens. 
The show, which took place in an amphitheater with a horseshoe-shaped moat, was like The Rockettes, a Busby Berkeley movie, and a swimming exhibition combined. Rose cast several hundred slim, attractive women who he called the Aquabells to perform flashy, synchronized routines while a live band played. One signature Aquabells move featured the cast diving into the pool in a line, each woman leaping just as the last hit the water, a striking visual that would later pop up in several Esther Williams films. Along with his stock company of bathers, Rose also cast two leading stars of his show, the Aquadonis Johnny Weismuller, a gold medal Olympic swimmer who would go on to star as Tarzan in movies of the 1930s, and Eleanor Holm, a spirited blonde who won an Olympic gold medal in swimming in 1932 and then became the subject of a very public scandal during the 1936 Games. On the transatlantic steamer carrying athletes to the Games in Berlin, Holm became severely intoxicated on champagne and passed out in public. Avery Brundage, the president of the U.S. Olympic Committee, immediately banned her from the Games, a shocking and frankly misogynistic punishment that only caused Holm's star to rise as a cause celeb. Holm always alleged that she had once denied Brundage's sexual advances and that he dismissed her from the Games out of personal revenge. Holm would soon be the center of another scandal when she began a secret affair with Rose, who left Fanny Bryce to marry Holm. When Rose decided to replicate the Aquacade in San Francisco for the 1939 World's Fair exhibition there, he needed a new star. Holm was tied up in the New York show, so Rose went to California in search of a fresh face. Esther had to run over to the audition on her lunch break with a red swimsuit on underneath her clothes. When it was her turn to swim, Esther dove into the pool and swam as fast as she could, doing four laps in record time. She figured this would impress the impresario. When she emerged looking proud, Rose told her that he wasn't looking for an athlete. I don't want fast, he said. I want pretty. He told her that if she wanted to star in his show, she would need to learn how to swim with her head above water so that the audience could see her face. Esther told him she could do it. Rose offered her $40 a week, and she countered with $150. Remarkably, he agreed to her price. Soon, she was on a train to San Francisco. It was during rehearsals for the Aquacade that Esther first learned how to, as she put it, swim pretty. The choreographer, John Murray Anderson, taught her how to ignore her instincts to swim for speed and instead move like a ballerina in the water. Swimming pretty, she soon found, took even more athletic endurance than sprinting laps. In order to hold herself above the surface, Esther had to perform a series of isometric maneuvers that required tremendous abdominal strength. She also had to do all of this while dealing with sexual harassment from Weismuller. This tension, the demand to look beautiful and serene while exerting extraordinary physical effort, would come to define much of Esther's life. The unspoken secret behind the very idea of the bathing beauty is the labor necessary to maintain the human mermaid facade. 
With her cherubic cheekbones and flaxen hair, Esther looked just like many of the other peroxided ingenues who flowed through the studio system. But unlike Betty Grable or Jean Harlow or virtually any other Hollywood blonde, it was Esther's athletic prowess that made her a star. First of the Aquacade, and then at MGM, where Louis B. Mayer signed her to a contract after seeing her perform in San Francisco. When Mayer signed Esther, he was looking for a specialized kind of talent. He had already signed Sonia Henney, the figure skater, to appear in Winter Wonderland romances with titles like Thin Ice. He now wanted Henny's summertime equivalent, a woman who could symbolize the golden dream of California. He wanted Esther to embody the fantasy of swimming rather than the athletic reality of it. All of her hard work to become the fastest swimmer in the country did not really apply to her screen career. Like Billy Rose, Mayer did not want fast. He wanted pretty. Let's pause here and consider what was considered pretty in 1940 when it came to bodies in swimwear. Esther made the transition to screen, unlike so many of the Aquabelles, because she had a very specific body type. She was thin, but also curvaceous, with strong muscular shoulders and solid thighs. She was an hourglass, but a sporty one, much like the healthy-looking California models that the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue would later seek out. She did not look anemic, but she was extremely trim. And this was a balance that she would have to maintain for almost 20 years, and which became more stressful every year. Many of us don't feel comfortable parading around in swimwear for even one day. Imagine having to do it for two decades. And beyond that, being the standard bearer for what a woman's body should look like in a one-piece. Still, Esther never wanted to look too emaciated. She told one newspaper in the 50s, when asked if she would be trying out the new chest-binding styles out of Paris, Who ever heard of a flat-chested mermaid? She kept her figure steady by eating chicken, string beans, and steamed carrots. When Esther signed her MGM contract in 1941, she put in a stipulation that she could not appear in films for nine months. She wanted to learn to act, for one, and she also felt that she needed some time to adjust to the studio system. As part of her contract, she insisted that she be given a guest card to the Beverly Hills Hotel, then known as the Pink Palace, so that she could swim laps in the hotel pool every morning. She did this both as a matter of convenience and of vanity. Esther had an exhibitionist streak. She liked people to see her swim. The Beverly Hills Pool wasn't just a place to practice her breaststroke. It was a scene. She posed for several early press photos in the hotel pool, emerging from the waters like a siren. In a way, swimming at the Beverly Hills Hotel, with photographers poised to transmit her image around the globe, was her first role for MGM. But the first movie role that would fully establish Esther Williams' star persona came in a 1944 comedy called Bathing Beauty, in which Red Skelton played a songwriter who woos a college swimming instructor, played by Esther. The finale features Esther in a lavish water ballet, which she filmed at MGM in a brand new, giant, 20-foot-deep, 90-by-90-foot pool with a hydraulic lift that could rocket swimmers out of the waters like Aphrodite. Here's Esther in 1999, 
taking a tour of the pool on stage 30 where she filmed most of her water stunts. This is the this tank. This is the tank. This is my 90 by 90 tank, 20 feet deep. There's a hydraulic lift down there. When they discovered the hydraulic lift, it was a discovery. They said, oh, thank God we can raise her up. And you see that's 80 feet up there. That's where the dive from the gold swimsuit was. We didn't know it, Esther later remembered, but we were about to invent synchronized swimming as it had never been seen before on film. Choreographer John Murray Anderson, the same one she had worked with at the Aquacade, was nearing retirement and decided to go out with a bang. He staged a full spectacular that took two weeks to rehearse, with 150 women lining up for that one-after-another diving line, which came to be known as the tiller, because its ripple effect resembled the tilling disc on a plow. Esther, who arrived on set with a 102 temperature and was told she had to shoot anyway, made her grand entrance on the hydraulic lift, rising out of the waters in a Roman toga as the orchestra played Die Fledermaus. She then drops the toga to reveal a swimsuit laced with tiny mirrors so that it will still sparkle underwater, and dives into the pool. As she performed a flip she called the back dolphin in the center of the swimmers, fountains spurt geysers of colored water, and fireworks were launched from the surface of the pool. The overall effect is that of a funfetti cake dropped into a puddle, but in her glittery one-piece, gliding through the water like a goddess, Esther is mesmerizing. It was with this spectacular that Esther and her collaborators invented the swimming picture, a genre she'd dominate for two decades. These movies struck an optimistic chord with audiences during wartime. Esther's physique, strong and yet supple, projected American hardiness and superiority, while the elaborate choreography she performed displayed ingenuity and grandeur. If Esther, an all-American girl, could dive 100 feet off a platform with no fear, then we must be doing something right. Just as Esther's screen career was erupting, her personal life was falling apart. And this would be a running theme throughout her career. She married her first husband, Leonard Kovner, in 1940, before signing with MGM. After she began making movies, they grew distant and divorced in 1944. But being single in Hollywood left her open to other problems. Several studio executives propositioned her, including Sam Katz, the production supervisor at MGM. Early in her tenure at the studio, he pulled Esther aside and asked her if she wanted to be with him. When she said no, he offered her expensive diamond jewelry. She turned it down, telling him that if he really wanted to give her a gift, he'd donate money to the community pool where she grew up. Instead, he constructed the quarter-million-dollar pool on stage 30, where she shot most of her films. Like so many stars of her era, Esther's relationships with studio executives were tied up with ambition and repulsion, fear and indebtedness. And she may have had it worse than some, because she spent so much time on set nearly naked, her body exposed and shivering after performing take after take in the pool. When she was a child, the pool was her safe space. At MGM, it became more fraught than that, although it was still her center of gravity. Hollywood costumers and makeup artists were not used to outfitting women who were just going to dunk themselves in chlorine moments later. So Esther's films forced innovation. In the early days, 
Before the invention of waterproof makeup, the key to getting Esther's cosmetics and hair to stay in place was to create a sticky, slimy film between her skin and the water, the way a duck's feathers are coated in natural oils. Her hairdressers would warm a bowl of baby oil and Vaseline and then smack the hot Vaseline all over her body. They also smeared this mixture, which Esther described as suitable for lubricating cars, all over her scalp, creating several tiny oily braids all over her head. They then attached two larger artificial braids to her natural ones, using hairpins that gave her welts. The look became her signature hairstyle because it stayed put, even when she launched off a high dive. Because it took so much time to get Esther oiled up and camera ready, it was a disaster when she had to change quickly for a scene that took place in a dry setting. Once, in an effort to remove her hair grease during scenes, someone poured acetone all over her scalp, a mistake that left Esther stinging and surprised that she had any hair left at all. When it came to finding face makeup that wouldn't budge, Esther's go-to makeup artist at MGM, Bill Tuttle, had to get a little more creative. At first, he tried pancake makeup, but it simply washed off, leaving a grimy beige trail on the surface of the water. He then found a special cream makeup with a very thick base that was the consistency of cold butter. An artist would slather this base on Esther's face, powder her, and then send her directly to stand in the steam of the hot showers, where the heat would melt the layers together and set the look before shooting. Then there was her eye makeup. The first waterproof mascaras launched in 1938, but they burned the eyes of many who wore them, as their main ingredient was turpentine. As Esther's stardom grew, companies began to feel that they could capitalize on her fame and develop a more viable solution. By the late 1940s, the German cosmetics company Leichner had created a product called Wimperlack, specifically for Esther. It was an inky black sealer that could stay on the lashes for up to a week, essentially a temporary lash dye. And it launched a craze for waterproof eye makeup that swept the mid-century cosmetics market. Esther never profited from these products, even though her stardom was the impetus for their invention. One arena in which Esther was immediately hands-on was costume design. While Hollywood tailors knew exactly how to sew a satin evening gown on the bias, they had little real-world experience with creating practical swimwear. During the filming of This Time for Keeps in 1947, a costumer made Esther a suit out of lumberjack flannel that absorbed water like an old army blanket. Esther kept sinking to the bottom of the tank while trying to float in it, eventually having to unzip her suit in the water and discard it before it pulled her under. From then on, she asked to sit in on costume meetings and consult about fabric and construction decisions for herself and the other aquatic dancers in her films. She also signed her first swimsuit endorsement deal just before Neptune's Daughter in 1949. Collaborating on the Esther Williams suit with the designer Fred Cole, who ran the swimwear brand Cole of California. The deal was worth six figures, as much as she was making per year from MGM at the time. In order to convince Louis B. Mayer to allow her to promote a product outside of the studio, she promised him that Cole would costume all of the swimmers in Neptune's Daughter for free. 
Esther's coal suit, a tight one-piece that extends down the upper thighs and gathers at the hips, became instantly iconic and associated with her image. It is the suit that inspired the version you can purchase online today. She helped make swimwear feel as aspirational and luxurious as a fur stole. Every woman wanted to look as voluptuous and held in at the beach as Esther looked, emerging from a clamshell in Million Dollar Mermaid. The Coles swimsuit business, which later relaunched in 1989 as the Esther Williams Collection, gave Esther power outside the studio. But by 1949, she was beginning to feel powerless in her personal life. Her second husband, Ben Gage, was a terrible alcoholic and a compulsive gambler who spent a great deal of her earnings on jaunts to Vegas. In 1951, Life magazine profiled her as the mermaid tycoon. But Gage was bleeding his tycoon wife's fortunes dry. In 1949, she had become pregnant with her first child, and the studio expected her to be back on set and in a swimsuit shortly after the baby was born. Esther had two more children before 1953, and every time she had to bounce right back to her bikini body. She said that Life magazine should have called her Exhausted Esther because she was worn out trying to raise three young children, manage an unstable husband, and spend several hours in a saucer tank waving through the window while frolicking among fake coral. In 1999, Williams spoke about how worn out she felt during her marriage to Gage. I found that when I could get home from work, with those chlorinated eyes and that soggy, <laughs> that soggy feeling in the bones from being in the water all day, all I wanted to do was be with my babies. I didn't feel like policing a husband and finding out what he'd done with the money that day. The amount of physical sacrifices that any actress has to make for her career, even now, is extreme. But Esther Williams set a new standard for giving her body over to the job. She was expected to do her own stunts, and she often did them without much warning or supervision. In 1952, Esther took on what would become her most famous role, portraying the Australian swimming champion Annette Kellerman in Million Dollar Mermaid. It was an ideal role for Esther because she was playing one of the women who made her career possible. Kellerman was famous for being one of the first women to wear a one-piece bathing suit at the turn of the century, an act that led to her being arrested for indecent exposure. Kellerman, who always advocated for women to be bold, went on to indecently expose herself even further in silent films. She often posed in the nude and shot several fairy tale aquatic scenes while skinny dipping. Though most of Kellerman's films have been lost to time, we know that she was notorious for taking on risky stunt dives, often from several stories high. Director Mervyn Leroy and choreographer Busby Berkeley wanted Esther to channel Kellerman's fearlessness in her performance. They decided that the centerpiece of the film would be a scene with a 100-foot dive off the hydraulic lift. For the scene, Esther wore a full-body diver's suit made of fishnet and sequins, along with a gold crown made of lightweight aluminum. As she was raised in the air six stories high, she looked down at the water and gulped. 
Berkeley yelled for her to jump, and having no time to think twice, she threw herself into a swan dive. While in the air, Esther thought, oh shit. She realized with a panic that the crown atop her head would not allow her to enter the water at a clean or flexible angle. When she hit the pool, the crown snapped her head back, instantly paralyzing her arms and shoulders. Everyone left for lunch, thinking they had gotten the shot, but Esther continued to thrash around in the water. Only her wardrobe supervisor, Flossie Hackett, stuck around to help her change. When Hackett saw that Esther was sinking, she ran to the soundstage door and shouted, I think Esther Williams is dead. At the hospital, Esther discovered that she had broken three vertebrae in her back and had almost snapped her entire spinal cord. She was in a full body cast for six months, but she was lucky to be alive. Esther had been having a lusty affair with her married co-star, Victor Mature. Her injury put a stop to their tryst, but it also clarified that she wanted out of her marriage to Gage, who had stolen millions from her accounts. As for Million Dollar Mermaid, the Technicolor Extravaganza opened at Radio City Music Hall in New York City at Christmas time and was such a splash that it ran for almost a year as a cinematic event. Million Dollar Mermaid was the zenith of Esther's career, but it also spelled the beginning of the end. She made a handful of swimming spectacles for MGM after that, but the era of the big studio shindig was beginning to wind down, and several of the studio's biggest stars, including Greer Garson and Clark Gable, had left their contracts. Esther saw the writing on the wall when she was offered a bit part in the remake of The Women, a project that seemed tired to her on arrival. She was getting smaller and smaller parts in smaller and smaller films, and she began to think about breaking her contract and going solo. She decided quietly to leave MGM. Esther Williams packed all her tired, saggy bathing suits in which the elastic had died and drove off the MGM lot for the last time leaving behind $3 million in deferred income that the studio owed her. She signed with William Morris and made a psychological drama for Universal that involved no swimming at all, but audiences did not know how to react to her when she was not doing flutter kicks in a bathing cap. Esther ended up swiftly returning to what she knew best, first creating a national aquatic tour for herself where she replicated several of her maximalist movie routines, and then transferring her act to two television specials, the Esther Williams Aqua Spectacle and Esther Williams at Cypress Gardens. And then, in 1957, Esther learned that she owed the government $750,000 in back taxes, or she would lose her house in Mandeville Canyon. Gage had not only stolen money from her, but misreported their earnings to the IRS— Esther struck a deal so that moving forward she would only keep a tiny percentage of her earnings, enough to cover living expenses, and the rest would go directly to pay down her debts. Esther had separated from Gage, but she had trouble getting rid of him. On what would have been their 12th anniversary in 1957, Gage left a black wreath of dead flowers scorched by a blowtorch on Esther's porch. 
after much back and forth about a settlement, a judge finally granted Esther a divorce in 1959 on the grounds of mental cruelty. Recovering from this mess took the help of an analyst and something a bit stronger. After her divorce, at the urging of Cary Grant, she went to see Grant's experimental doctor, who specialized in treatments of a new drug. The doctor said this drug would help her visualize her path forward. That drug was LSD. During her first hallucinogenic trip, Esther realized that after her younger brother died, she had taken on the role of filling his shoes, remaining strong and unbreakable, first for her family and then for the public. She was so used to maintaining perfection, to being slicked into place at all times, that she had been unable to let her guard down. Perhaps she let her guard down a bit too easily from then on. Esther first met Argentinian actor and director and former swimming champ Fernando Lamas when filming the MGM comedy Dangerous When Wet, about an American woman trying to swim the English Channel and a French man who picks her up in his rowboat when she loses her way. Here's a clip of Esther and Lamas on screen in Dangerous When Wet. Nature grand, ain't nature grand. You'll find it never is too late. Too late, too late. Ain't nature simply great. On that set, when she was cold after filming a beach scene, Lamas, according to Esther, offered her, quote, his crotch as a hand warmer. They met again when he co-starred in her TV special in Cypress Gardens, Florida. They had an extremely passionate affair. Esther described the sex as a thrilling roller coaster ride. Esther wanted to marry Lamas, but he had several unusual conditions. He wanted her to quit show business, and he wanted her to live separately from her children. Shockingly, she agreed to both restrictions. Their marriage was, by Esther's accounts, an early version of Fifty Shades of Grey. After she stopped working, she gained about 50 pounds, which she attributed to the fact that the only workouts she was getting were in the bedroom. When somebody is feasting off your flesh, she told her sister, you can't let them go hungry. Then, when Lamas wanted her to lose the weight, she dropped it quickly. He likes me fat, he likes me thin, she said, but most of all, he likes me home. Lamas' temper grew increasingly erratic, and he rarely wanted Esther to entertain guests at their home. Still, she stayed with him for 12 years, rarely seeing her children until he died in 1982. When she emerged at last from that experience, she was 60 years old. She went on a cruise in Greece, and reflecting on her life, realized that she desperately missed swimming. She reappeared in front of the camera in an instructional video called Swim Baby Swim. She was nervous about wading back into the public eye, especially because she had been out of it for 25 years. I was sorely aware that the last time the public had seen me, I was an athletic 38-year-old size 10, she said. It is difficult for any of us, as we age, to compete with the memory of how we looked in our youth. But Esther had to contend with hours of footage of herself as a gleaming beach babe. 
She got plastic surgery on her eyelids, whitened her teeth, and lost 20 pounds in two weeks by swimming vigorous laps in the pool. She threw away her caftans and decided that, as she put it, she would be Esther Williams again. Still, despite these small concessions to vanity, she tried to make peace with aging, claiming that she would never become an aquatic version of Norma Desmond. Esther Williams lived to be 91 years old. She lived to see Diana Nyad complete her legendary swim around Manhattan Island and to see Missy Franklin win five medals at the 2012 Olympics. Women who are swimmers now can just be fast. They don't have to be pretty. But, as Esther showed, there is meaning in the fusion of the two, in the creative ways that Esther and those around her managed to showcase the art of swimming on the big screen. We now live in a world in which every drugstore cosmetics brand makes waterproof mascara, and where women like the Wikiwachi Springs mermaids perform several times a day in waterproof lipstick inspired by the Esther Williams aesthetic. In processing her own trauma through swimming, Esther defined for herself what it meant to be a waterproof woman. She also pioneered a new definition of what it meant to be a strong woman in Hollywood by presenting an image of physical strength and athleticism, by doing death-defying stunts that not even the men around her dared attempt. Esther Williams' life was a long crawl, but it was punctuated by dramatic strokes. Thanks for listening to Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. This episode was written and performed by Rachel Syme. Make Me Over was created and directed by Karina Longworth. That's me. I also edited the scripts. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Make Me Over is produced by Tomika Weatherspoon. And the audio is edited by Jared O'Connell and Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineers are Jared O'Connell, Andrea Christens, and Brendan Burns. The supervising producer is Josephine Martirana, and the executive producer is Chris Bannon. We'll be back next week with another tale about the intersection of 20th century Hollywood and the beauty industry. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher. 